This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, All In with Chris Hayes, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Media Matters Minute, and Counterspin. And a quick note that the term nuclear option in reference to the filibuster is ridiculous hyperbole and not at all representative of what it's referring to, but unfortunately, that's the term we're stuck with. So, enjoy. Okay, I want to talk about... Uh, some kind of seemingly wonky stuff, but this this is really important. This is this is the core stuff of government, and what I'm talking about is the D.C. Circuit Court and the filibuster. Now, let me explain how this works. You have the Supreme Court. Everybody knows the Supreme Court. You know, the, it's basically our constitutional monarchy. Below the Supreme Court, there are a group of what are called federal appeals courts or federal district courts that can feed a case to the Supreme Court or or not. They sometimes they're not appealed to the Supreme Court, and most of them are numbered, um, but there is one that is not. It's the District of Columbia Court, and the the Federal Circuit court for the District of Columbia is the most important of all of these courts, and and here's why. When you sue and and the lawsuit gets all the way up to just below the Supreme Court, it's getting to one of these circuit courts. It's getting to one of these district courts and these appeals courts, and it has to be in the right court. It has to be in the court for that jurisdiction. So if if you're dealing with a case that has to do with BP, you'd probably be in whatever, I, I think it's the 4th, 3rd, 4th, 5th, whatever it is, the circuit court down in, in Louisiana. If you're dealing with a case that happens in California, it'll be the Ninth Circuit. Something that has to do with California law or the constitutionality of California, whatever it may be. But if your lawsuit has to do with federal law, federal laws are made in Washington, D.C., and they are enforced out of Washington, D.C., out of the executive branch, the, the president's office, through agencies that are part of the executive branch, the EPA, the Department of Labor, the you know Food and Drug Administration, the USDA, all of these agencies are creations of the federal government, and when they the, the you know the banking uh, much of the banking oversight, when these agencies are challenged, when you know some some guy or company that owns a, a coal-fired power plant comes along and says, you don't have the right, EPA, to regulate how much mercury or poison I'm dumping into the air out of my smokestack. That goes to the D.C. Circuit Court because it's about a federal regulation. So federal regulations pretty much aren't litigated anywhere else in the United States except in this one court, the D.C. Circuit Court. And up until about three or four months ago, for a long time, the Republicans held a majority on that court. It's four to three. Now there's twelve seats on that court, I believe. Eleven seats. Eleven. Thank you, Shano. It is it is wonderful having a guy who's actually a law school graduate as as my associate producer who can whisper in my ear from time to time. Thank you. Um, so there's eleven seats on the D.C. court, but only seven of them were filled. Four by Democratic appointees excuse me, by Republican appointees, three by Republican appointees. 
And a few months ago, uh, President Obama successfully appointed Sri Srinivasan, I believe is how his name is pronounced, uh, to that court. So now it's evenly split, Democratic and Republican. But some of the Democrats are a little conservative, and all of the Republicans are just total right-wing whack jobs. So there's these three empty seats. And President Obama has nominated, over the last three weeks, Patricia Millett, Nina Pollard, and now Robert Wilkins to this court, to the D.C. court. Robert Wilkins, there was just a vote on this yesterday or the day before. He got 53 votes, which means he should have been on the court. It takes more than 50%. There's 100 senators. 50 senators plus the vice president or 51 senators should get you on the court. And he got 53 votes. But the Republicans filibustered it. And to overcome a filibuster, you have to have 60 votes. Same thing with Patricia Millett. She passed. She was filibustered. Same thing with Nina Pollard. She passed. She was filibustered. Nobody is questioning the credentials of any of these people. These are highly qualified nominees to the court. Senator Elizabeth Warren said, and I quote, we need to call out these filibusters for what they are, naked attempts to nullify the results of the last presidential election to force us to govern as though President Obama had not won the 2012 election. And then she went on to say, if Republicans continue to filibuster these highly qualified nominees for no reason other than to nullify the president's constitutional authority, then senators not only have the right to change the filibuster rules, senators have the duty to change the filibuster rules. We cannot turn our backs on the Constitution. We cannot abdicate our oath of office. Now, up until very recently, what we're talking about here is something called the nuclear option, which is basically saying... We're going to change, the Senate is going to change its rules. Harry Reid would have to initiate this. The Senate is going to change its rules. And oddly enough, it only takes 51 votes in the Senate to change the rule that allows 40 Republicans to require 60 votes on things. You following me? The filibuster, in other words, the Republicans insisting on 60 votes, and Democrats don't have 60 votes, so that means the Republicans can always stop things. That rule can be changed with 51 votes. The rules of the Senate are subject to a majority. That's in the Constitution. So Harry Reid can basically say, okay, I want to have a vote on whether or not we're going to do away with the ability of anybody to filibuster at least judicial nominees. Now, this isn't a full nuclear option. This is just for judicial nominees. And Dianne Feinstein and many of the other kind of conventional, mainstream, big-name Democrats have been opposed to this up until recently. Dianne Feinstein just came out in favor of it, or at least saying she'd seriously consider it. Elizabeth Warren is obviously in favor of it. In fact, so far, the only guy that we know who's really outspokenly opposed to this is Carl Levin, the Democrat from Michigan. I think this is vital. The president needs to put his appointees on this court because this court makes the decisions about what, you know, about the EPA, about the Department of Labor, about your right to organize, about your right to have clean air, clean water, about, you know, just all kinds of things. This court makes those decisions. And the president should not only should have the right, the Constitution gives him the right, with a majority of the Senate consenting, that's 51 senators, to have his nominees on that court. 
And the Republicans are saying no, not because these are bad people, but simply because it's President Obama putting them forward. This is wrong. Changing all your scenery, saying you don't care, you're not going Today, Harry Reid took the first step in asserting majority rule in the United States Senate. It's taken us more than 200 years to get to this day. Do I really know what my constitutional rights are? Do I really know what the Constitution is? In the United States Constitution, there are five specific instances where a Senate supermajority is required to act. A two-thirds majority is required to impeach a president, ratify a treaty, expel a senator, overcome a veto, and amend the Constitution. When it comes to the term filibuster, an all-in investigation has revealed that the word does not exist in the Constitution. The invention of the filibuster comes to us from none other than the guy who murdered Alexander Hamilton. Under Vice President Aaron Burr, the Senate changed an obscure set of rules that ended up allowing for endless actual debate. Filibuster! Now known as a talking filibuster. And I'll tell you one thing, that wild horses aren't going to drag me off this floor until those people have heard everything I've got to say, even if it takes all winter. <laughs> that tool was rarely used until 1917, when during World War I, a small group of Republican anti-war senators killed a bill to arm merchant ships. President Woodrow Wilson wasn't having it. Unilaterally armed the ships and pushed the Senate to change the rules so that a two-thirds majority could overcome a talking filibuster, thus creating cloture, the vote taken to overcome the filibuster. And the rules stayed that way until the post-Watergate reform era. This is NBC Nightly News with David Brinkley in Washington and John Chancellor in New York. Good evening. The filibuster fever has broken out in the United States Senate. In 1975, Democratic Majority Leader Mike Mansfield oversaw two changes. One, a change to the rules making it easier to defeat a filibuster by lowering the threshold to 60 votes. The other change made it easier to launch a filibuster allowing senators simply to announce their intention to filibuster rather than actually delivering a speaking filibuster. Thus, the procedural filibuster was born. And it was used around 20 times a year throughout the Carter and Reagan administrations. But perhaps not surprisingly, its use spiked under Bill Clinton. They uh, uh, required us to get 60 votes. We didn't get it. We didn't get it twice. Uh, and so uh, where I come from, that means we lost. By 2005, it was Republicans who were threatening filibuster reform. We turn to the latest political battle brewing on Capitol Hill. It's the fight over federal judges and the so-called nuclear option. Back then, it was a Senator McConnell urging up or down votes. Let's get back to the way the Senate operated for over 200 years, up or down votes on the president's nominee, no matter who the president is, no matter who's in control of the Senate. Back then, the two sides were able to avoid pushing the button. Since then, Republicans have embarked on an unprecedented obstruction campaign against the president's agenda. 
particularly against his executive and judicial nominees. You can see the obstruction ticked up under Clinton and effectively doubled under Obama. In the history of our country, some 230 plus years, there have been 168 filibusters of executive and judicial nominations. Half of them have occurred during the Obama administration. After cycles of threats and gentlemen's agreements with Mitch McConnell, Republicans blocked all three of the president's most recent judicial nominations, daring Reid to act. And today, he did. So Harry decided, oh, you know what? All these Republicans, they're going to block all the nominees. They're going to talk a lot of smack. They're going to give me lip. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I'm going to come, I'm going to press that red button, and we're going to go nuclear. Here's Dirty Harry Reid. Republicans refuse to give them up or down vote. A simple yes or no vote. Republicans simply don't want President Obama to make any appointments at all to this vital court. None. Zero. Further, only 23 district court nominations have been filibustered in the entire history of our country. 23. But you know what? 20 of them have been in the last four and a half years. 230 plus years. Three. Last four and a half years. 20. That's not fair. This is not about Democrats versus Republicans. This is about making Washington work regardless of who's in the White House or who controls the Senate. To remain relevant and effective as an institution, the Senate must evolve to meet the challenges of this modern era. It's between those who are willing to help break the gridlock in Washington and those who defend the status quo. Is the Senate working now? Can anyone say the Senate is working now? I don't think so. Hey, listen, in the past, Harry Reid would speak timidly and then act even more timidly. But now, yes, that was timid speech in voice, in tenor, as Harry Reid always does. That's who he is. But now he's beginning to act boldly. So that's why I was saying earlier in the week, I'm done with Harry Reid talking and talking about ending the filibuster. The next time I cover it will be only when they finally end the filibuster when it comes to nominees. And he finally did it today. And in the past, the Democrats and Harry Reid would always stop because they said, well, civility and, and bipartisanship, and we have to get along in the Senate. But one of the things that Reid pointed out in his speech today was, well, look, we just made a deal on this a couple of months ago. And Mitch McConnell came and said, all right, we'll stop being extreme and we'll stop blocking every nominee. Well, they lied. They, right after we made the deal, what did they do? They blocked every nominee. Not, hey, oh wow, that one's really extreme, we're going to block that one, that's what the filibuster's for. Not, hey, you know what, we're going to expand that a little bit, and you might think that they're not extreme, but we do, we really hate liberals, so we're, we're going to block 
20, 30% of your nominees. No, they blocked them all. Well, that's obviously extraordinary. So Harry Reid has obviously had enough. It wasn't just the speech, it wasn't just the actions. Then on Twitter, he sends out this great note, and this is why you know that he's done with McConnell and all the nonsense that the Republicans have been talking. And he finally understands that these Republicans, you can't work with them. The only thing they understand is force, political force, okay? And hence why you would go to a nuclear option to end the filibuster on nominees. He tweeted out, I'm old enough to remember where Senator McConnell was in favor of up and down votes on nominees. And then attach this vine to it. Watch. Up or down vote should be given to a president's judicial nominees. Up or down vote. Up or down vote. All we're looking for is an up or down vote. Up or down vote should be given to a president's judicial nominees. Up or down vote. Up or down vote. All we're looking for is an up or down vote. Up or down vote should be given to a president's judicial nominees. Up or down vote. Up or down vote. All we're looking for is an up or down vote. You let him know who's who, Harry Reid. You let him know who's boss. Mitch McConnell says, when I'm running this place, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Harry Reid says, well, that's a sad day for you, because that day is not today. I'm the boss around here, and you're going to stop obstruction, and I'm going to be the cop who stops it. Boss sicked it. <laughs> Wait, who expected that Harry Reid would be Charles Bronson? It's just a start, but it's a good start. All right, now, what's the Republican reaction to this? Oh, boy, man. Oh, they're hurt, dog. Don't ask them if they're all right. Well, we asked him anyway. Here's Mitch McConnell. I'd be looking to change the subject. Change the subject. Just as Senate, Senate Democrats have been doing with their threats of going nuclear and changing the Senate rules on nominations. But here's the problem with this latest distraction. It doesn't distract people from Obamacare. It reminds them of Obamacare. It reminds them of all the broken promises. It reminds them of the power grab. It reminds them of the way Democrats set up one set of rules for themselves and another for everybody else. Once again, Senate Democrats are threatening to break the rules of the Senate, break the rules of the Senate in order to change the rules of the Senate. And over what? Over what? over a court that doesn't even have enough work to do? They cook up some fake fight over judges. A fake fight over judges that aren't even needed. He may as just as well have said, if you like the rules of the Senate, you can keep them. <laughs> huh? If you like the rules of the Senate, you can keep them. Oh, man. The Republicans thought that was the funniest thing they ever heard in their life. That's why McConnell turns around and he's like, huh? Huh? You know, because Obama said, if you like your health care plan, you can give it. Huh? Huh? <laughs> That's why he repeated it as well. Yeah, nice, Mitch. Nice. Uh, these guys are unbelievable. I mean, we've gone through this before. Look, these guys come out and say, no, they're trying to pack the court. When the court is unpacked by the Republicans, then they come out and say, uh, we've done nothing out of the ordinary here, even though they have done half the filibuster of nominees in U.S. history in just five years. And then he says, oh, they're just trying to distract you from Obamacare. <laughs> no, this has nothing to do with Obamacare. This has to do with the judges. Yes, on Obamacare, there's issues, and you fight that out in any way you like. But you guys aren't playing by the rules, so enough is enough.
Okay? And now, of course, the, oh, the Republicans are seething. They're saying, you're going to rue the, the Democrats are going to rue the day they did this, that they went with this nuclear option. Uh, here's Senator Alexander, according to a tweet from Mike Mamoli. He says, Senator Alexander calls this the most dangerous restructuring of Senate rules since Thomas Jefferson wrote them. By the way, Thomas Jefferson did not write the filibuster rules. The filibuster rules are not in the Constitution. They're Senate rules that have changed from time to time, and they happen to change again today. Okay, It has nothing to do with Thomas Jefferson. That's his way of connecting the two as if the filibuster is in the Constitution, which it isn't. Look it up. And uh, Casey Hunt reports, the Senator McConnell spokesman says, I'm looking forward to President Rubio stacking the courts. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't hold your breath if I were you, though. <laughs> I don't know who the president's going to be, but I guarantee you that, of course, McConnell says, you know, if you guys do this, and they did, the Democrats, what I'm going to do is I'm going to strike back. If I'm ever the majority leader, the Republicans recapture the Senate, I'm going to end the filibuster on everything, not just executive nominees, also Supreme Court nominees, and not just nominees overall, but on all legislation. But guess what? He was going to do that Anyway, when Harry Reid threatened the nuclear option, McConnell immediately said, oh, well, that's it. I can't wait to be in charge. I'm going to get rid of everything. You think he wouldn't have followed through on that threat? You think he would have played fair? The guys who broke the record on filibusters by a landslide, do you think they would have played fair? No. No, they were going to do it anyway. So it was way past time, and immediately the Democrats went in and confirmed one of the justices that they had been blocking for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. She's in now, and the others are coming soon. So Republicans, they have obstruction on at least these judicial nominees and executive nominees outside of the Supreme Court are officially over. They're done. On a historic day in American politics. Today really was a really, really, really big day. Uh, this is Richard Toronto. Do not be distracted by his last name. He is not a mayor. He is not Canadian. He has nothing to do with crack cocaine. He has nothing to do with Canadian football. Nothing to do with anything that looks anything like this. Rather, Richard Toronto is a lawyer who is focused on intellectual property issues. He has had a very successful, very highfalutin legal career. And Mr. Toronto was nominated for a prestigious federal judgeship a couple of years ago, November 2011. He was nominated and then nothing. Nothing happened. Republicans in the Senate would not allow there to be a vote on his nomination. And beyond that, they insisted that there would have to be a supermajority vote to confirm him as a judge. So not just a majority of the Senate could vote for this guy, it would have to be a supermajority, as if he were a treaty or a constitutional amendment or something. 
And so Richard Toronto, no relation, uh, waited month after 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 month. And then finally, this spring, 17 months after he was first nominated, after he had been waiting almost a year and a half, they finally eh, decided to put Richard Toronto's nomination up for a vote in the United States Senate. And you want to know what the vote was? The vote was 91 to nothing. Zero votes against him. No Republicans had any problem with him whatsoever. So what was all that about that? This is what it is like now under President Barack Obama. That has never been true before in American history. There have only been judicial and executive branch filibusters on nominees uh, since basically the 60s. But using them to make people wait years after they are nominated for something, before their nomination actually gets voted on, this is a new thing. This is a new thing. The Republicans in the Senate saved this one up for this particular president. On Tuesday of this week, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia wrote this ruling, uh, which allowed Texas basically to keep shutting down abortion clinics in the state. The new Texas anti-abortion law that has already shut down a third of the clinics in that state, uh, it's sort of on the bubble legally. And the Supreme Court had to decide whether to put a hold on the law while it is being challenged or whether they would let the law go ahead. And Justice Scalia wrote this ruling this week saying, yeah, let the law go ahead. Shut all those clinics down in the meantime. The four justices who disagreed with him were these guys. Stephen Breyer, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan. They were on the losing side of that argument about Texas. The other justices who sided with Justice Scalia were Clarence Thomas uh, and Samuel Alito. And even though they did not sign the ruling, we know mathematically, because the Scalia side won, that the other two justices on the court, Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy, also sided with Scalia on this ruling. And so these, this was the two sides in this really important Texas abortion ruling this week. But now, look at this breakdown. The side voting to keep the clinics open in Texas, those judges were appointed by President Obama, President Obama, President Clinton, President Clinton. The side that voted to shut down the clinics, those justices were appointed by George W. Bush, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan. Notice a trend? Notice any pattern here? Presidents appoint judges. This is one of the fundamental things that presidents do. If you boil presidents down, this is one of the last things left in the pot. All gelatinous down there. It is one of the most fundamental and consequential things that American presidents do. It is part and parcel of the job. It always has been. Like it or lump it, if you elect a president, that president will choose judicial nominees to fill vacant seats on federal courts. That's the deal in electing a president. And in the past, we've had plenty, plenty of fights over how bad a president's judgment can be in who he picks for the bench, or how radically ambitious he can be in terms of the ideology of his nominees. And there's been plenty of fights in the past about the quality of judges chosen by various presidents. So, like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did a, little, did a lot of work for the ACLU. Is that going to be okay with everybody when they vote on her? Or Caitlin Halligan, a more recent nominee, she was involved in litigation around gun manufacturers. Clarence Thomas had the sexual harassment allegations, famously. Harriet Myers apparently revealed under questioning that she did not know what the Fourth Amendment did. Or the Fifth Amendment. Also, yeah, don't keep asking. There have been fights in the past about people who were picked to be judges. About their qualifications, their temperament, whether they were a good person for that job. What's new is this. 
there, there is no objection to this guy. Republicans don't think there's anything wrong with this guy. No Republican cast a vote against him. But eh, you still got to sit out and wait for 17 months anyway because we're going to block your, the vote on you, filibuster your nomination, and make everybody take extraordinary measures to let you get anywhere near the bench, even though we have no problem with you as a nominee. That is new. And that is not a fight over Mr. Toronto. That is not a fight about anybody specific who the president is picking. That is a fight about whether or not this president, like all other presidents who went before him, is allowed to put people on the federal bench. This is a fight about President Obama. It's not that they dislike the nominees. They don't think that a president named Barack Obama should be allowed his nominees for the federal bench. Liberals tend to like FDR, right? The New Deal. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I welcome their hatred. Liberals love this guy. You know, I'm a liberal. I love the guy. One terrible thing that FDR did was he did try to pack the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court kept striking down his New Deal era legislation, saying it was unconstitutional. FDR's proposed fix for that was that he would add a whole bunch of new judges to the court. Not that he would pick new nominees for the court, but he would actually make the court larger. He'd leave the existing judges where they were, but he'd add half a dozen new judges to the court all at once, all of whom he would appoint, and voila, a new majority. FDR kind of thought about trying to do that, and he did not get away with it. And no matter what else you think about him as a president and as a historical figure, it really is an abiding scandal of his presidency that he even batted that idea around. In addition to their unprecedented, systematic blockade of judges, uh, this week Republicans tried to pull an FDR on one of the nation's most important federal courts. Republicans generally do not want President Obama appointing judges to federal courts anywhere in the country. But they really, really don't want President Obama appointing judges to what's considered to be the second most powerful court in the nation under the Supreme Court. It's that appeals court that sits in Washington, D.C. And it, as the court in D.C., it, it deals with a lot of questions about the constitutionality of various federal regulations and actions by the federal government. This is the court where John Roberts, for example, was a judge before he went to the Supreme Court in 2005. His seat there on that court has been vacant ever since he went to the Supreme Court. And two of the other seats on that court are vacant as well. There are three vacancies on that really important court. And the Republicans do not want to allow President Obama to put any nominees on that court to fill those vacancies. And so they have tried to do what FDR tried to do, kind of. They, they tried to change the number of seats on the court so that they could get there or preserve their desired ideological mix. Between the number of seats on the court that are filled right now and retired justices who also do work on cases when the caseload there is heavy, right now on that court there's a strong and actually quite aggressive conservative majority on that court. Republicans love that. So the Republicans under Chuck Grassley of Iowa have been trying to eliminate three of the seats on that court right now, the three seats that are now vacant. They have tried to change the size of the court, shrink it, so there's no more vacancies. So President Obama would not be allowed to appoint any judges to fill those empty seats. Get rid of the empty seats. He can't appoint anybody. The court stays conservative. Problem solved. Like FDR, they tried it, but they did not get away with it. They did, however, this week and last week, filibuster President Obama's three nominees to the vacant seats on that court. None of whom they had any particular objection to as people. The first one they filibustered, Patricia Millett there on the left, she was a assistant solicitor general in the George W. Bush administration. 
What was their objection going to be to her? These nominees got majority votes in Congress, but majority's not enough. Republicans used a filibuster to block them anyway, all of them. And you know what? Democrats just decided they had had enough. After years of fighting about this and pleading and promising and fuming and plotting and threatening over and over and over again that they would do something about this if Republicans kept it up, today, Democrats finally actually did something. You could have knocked me over with a feather. They called for an appeal of a parliamentary ruling on the floor of the Senate by a majority vote. They overturned the parliamentarian's ruling. It seemed like kind of a quiet exchange, but in doing that, they changed the rules of the United States Senate so Republicans can't just block judges anymore. Judges can be blocked on an up or down vote, on a, on a majority vote, like always, but they cannot be blocked anymore with just a minority of votes. Republicans cannot force that anymore. And, and I know, I can, as, as, I'm, as I'm hearing myself saying it, I know that it sounds like it's not that much of a change, but this is a huge freaking deal. This is like three-inch headlines. This is people who don't even care about politics really ought to care about this. Here's our explainer. This is a huge deal. And Republicans have lost their minds about this now that Democrats finally did it. Orrin Hatch today said, Democrats will rue the day. Mitch McConnell said, you will regret this and you will regret this sooner rather than later. David Vitter, my favorite today, said that this was a dictatorial move. But what this actually was in terms of how we got here was just an amazingly reckless miscalculation by the Republican side. Yes, it was the Democrats who pulled the trigger today, but the Democrats had said that they would pull the trigger if this kept happening. Republicans assumed that they could keep pushing the Democrats further and further and further and further on this. They believed that no matter the threats, Democrats would never actually do what was completely within their power to do. So they kept pushing. And Democrats said that filibustering, specifically filibustering these three nominees for that D.C. court would be pushing them too far and they would change the rules. Mitch McConnell did not believe it. He calculated that it would not happen. Thought it was worth doing anyway. Democrats would never follow through on their threat. Look at this though. If you want to understand the depth of what Mitch McConnell just did here with his calculation on this, just look at this. I'm not sure this has been on TV at all today. This month, as of November 2013, this is the official balance on the federal courts right now in the whole country in terms of full-time federal judges who are already working as judges in this country. Look, as of November 1st this year, there are 390 full-time federal judges in this country who were appointed by Republicans. And there are 390 full-time federal judges in this country who were appointed by Democrats. As of November 1st, as of this month, right now, the federal judiciary is exactly even in terms of Republican or Democratic influence on who is sitting on the bench. President Obama was trying to add three more Democratic nominees to that list, and Republicans decided no. It was unprecedented. They had no objections to these judges as people. They could make no case against them other than the fact that they just didn't want the president to have any more nominees. So they blocked those three nominations. They said they didn't want anybody in those vacant seats. That was where they drew the line. They said, no. Democrats said, don't do it. Don't block these three. That'll be pushing us too far. And the Republicans said, nope. We can't take it. You will not be allowed to add those three nominees. But you see what that gray pie is there? That, on the pie graph there? There's 390 Republican, 390 Democrat. The gray part there, that's how many vacancies there are right now on the federal bench. 93. So think about that for a second. 
If the Republicans had given in on those three judges, or even given in on just one or two of those three judges, I am telling you right now, we would not be where we are today. That would have let the steam out of the Democrats' fury. That would have made the Democrats rage on this issue calm significantly. If the Republicans had let the balance of the federal courts go from 50-50 to, what would it be, like 50.2% to 49.8%, if they just let those one or two or maybe three of those nominees through, the Democrats would still be gnashing their teeth and they'd still be complaining and annoyed, but this would still be a story that was too boring to put on television. Instead, the Republicans took a hard line on those three nominees, and now it is Katie bar the door. There is no reason now why President Obama cannot fill all 93 of those judgeships if he wants to. He only needs Democratic votes to do it. What were you thinking, Mitch McConnell? The minute after they changed the rule today in the Senate, one of those three nominees for that court in D.C. sailed right through. She got 55 votes, and that's all it takes now. Now she will be a judge, and so will the other two. And so will 93 more if the president wants it. The federal judiciary, if the president wants to, is going to get more than 90 new Democratic-appointed federal judges because Mitch McConnell didn't apparently think this through. Yeah, the Democrats did it, but it was always in their power to. Why didn't Mitch McConnell think they would? This is a huge change in Washington. And it does not apply just to judges. It also applies to executive branch nominations. So yeah, the Republicans picked this year to filibuster a nominee for Secretary of Defense for the first time in U.S. history, and they did it during a time of war. But they're not going to be able to do things like that anymore either. This is what the Democrats circulated today via press release and on social media to make the case for why they did this. This is judicial nominees and executive branch nominees filibustered under all previous presidents since you've been able to do that in America, in the entire history of the country. Half of the times this has happened in our country has been under President Obama. And that ended today. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm John Kerr. Rush Limbaugh spent a substantial portion of his radio show ranting about the Senate Democrats' decision to invoke the so-called nuclear option and reform the filibuster. Under the new rules, judicial and executive nominees can be confirmed by a majority vote of 51 instead of requiring the 60 supermajority they previously needed. 250 years of rules, Senate rules, out the window. As the Democrats have made it plain, they're not interested in democracy. And that really is what this means. Not interested in democracy at all. Total statist authoritarianism. But when Republicans were fighting for filibuster reform under Bush in December 2004, Limbaugh had quite a different take on the issue, saying, quote, This filibuster, as you know, they're filibustering these nominations, which requires essentially 60 votes for a judge to be confirmed. The Constitution says nothing about this. The Constitution says simply majority, 51 votes. And if nobody stops them, they're going to keep getting away with it. It's up to the Senate Republicans to stop them. They tell you on the phone to give you God a bone and grow a set of wings like a butterfly The guardian at the gate Remind you that you're late You try to take your time But you toe the line, toe the line 
before the Iran nuclear deal knocked it off the front pages. A rule change pushed through by Senate Democrats was getting a lot of media attention and criticism. Dubbed the nuclear option, the rule changes the threshold for approving some of the White House's judicial and executive appointments, from 60 votes to a simple majority. According to some media accounts, this represented an epic and dramatic rewriting of the country's political code. Washington makes history with a new low, said CBS anchor Scott Pelley, who went on to call it an historic breach. NBC anchor Brian Williams told viewers that just when you thought it couldn't get worse in Washington, it did. But the more important breach would be the regular use of the filibuster by Senate Republicans. As many of these media accounts get around to mentioning, the GOP has decided to block judicial confirmations because they don't want judges to fill vacant seats on some key courts. The rule change is, if anything, a response to this, an actually unprecedented move to change how the democratic process works. Over recent years, media coverage has shifted from treating the 60-vote requirement as a change in how the Senate works to the way things are just done. Many pundits are worried that this rule change will make partisanship much worse in Washington. But a more clear-headed assessment would be that this was not so much an act of extreme partisanship as a reaction to extreme partisanship. And speaking of the filibuster, George Will, the dean of conservative punditry, is fond of striking a moral pose and appealing to principle. In reality, a person could get whiplash trying to follow Will's unprincipled and hypocritical views. Appearing on Fox News' special report on November 21st, Will was sad that Senate Democrats had taken away the right of Senate minorities to use the filibuster to block presidential, judicial, and executive appointments. It was a melancholy day for American life, said Will. Quote, it diminishes minority rights, which are always a threat in a democracy where majorities rule. Close quote. Like many Republicans and conservatives, Will was singing a different tune 10 years ago when Democrats were in the Senate minority. Then the filibuster was an outrage. The notion that 41 Senate Democrats might succeed in blocking a Bush judicial nominee was, as Will put it, a coup against the Constitution. And 10 years before that, when a Republican Senate minority filibustered Bill Clinton's economic stimulus plan, Will was all for it, praising, quote, the right of a minority to use extended debate to obstruct Senate action, close quote, and cheering the generation that wrote and ratified the Constitution for properly establishing, quote, the Senate's permissive tradition regarding extended debates, close quote. Will dismissed liberal critics who frowned on the minority veto. In short, Will supports the filibuster when it empowers a Republican Senate minority and opposes it when it empowers a Democratic Senate minority. Like Groucho Marx, Will has his principles, and if you don't like them, he has others. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. I'm opposed to it. On general principles, I'm opposed to it. He's opposed to it. In fact, indeed. 
months before my son was born, I used to yell from night till morn, whatever it is, I'm against it. And I've kept yelling since I first commenced it. I'm against it. Earlier this week, the Democrats went nuclear, making a change to the filibuster rules governing uh, the votes on executive and judicial nominees. Now in the Senate, you can confirm those nominees with a simple majority vote. But the fallout is here. Many Republicans, both in the media and in politics, are not happy about it. Charles Krauthammer, in particular, is quite peeved. He was on the Fox News special report, and he was talking about the Democrats' hypocrisy on the filibuster. Well, I'm always amused by the nuclear option debate because it is, without a doubt, the most spectacular display of congressional hypocrisy, which is saying a lot. Because whenever the minority party is arguing, it says that this is a very important, indeed a majestic part of our Constitution. And as soon as the minority becomes a majority, like Harry Reid and the Democrats and Obama, all of a sudden it's a terrible instrument of obstruction. Look, as a matter of the means in which this was done, it was a, a rather low-down way. This is a fundamental change in the structure and the rules of the Senate and done on strict party line, uh, uh, party lines, which it should not be. Same way, incidentally, Obamacare, a major reform on party lines. That should not be. Now, uh, before we, we get to our commentary on this, uh, Krauthammer did have a little bit more that he said, and I love the particular expression he uses in this next video. As a conservative, I would say, I am extremely happy that the Democrats are doing this. The prospects are very strong that the Democrats are going to lose the Senate next year, and there is an excellent chance of losing the White House. And the Democrats will absolutely rue the day because they not only are going to allow a Republican majority, which will come one day anyway, to get its nominees through, but Chuck Grassley has said that when Republicans come into power, they're going to include Supreme Court nominees. And that would be a devastating blow to the liberals on the court and to the liberals in the country. So I don't think Democrats are going to remember this day with any joy in the near future. So, Charles Krauthammer well, talking as if he was a villain in a Batman movie. Yeah, totally. By yeah. the way, the Democrats are not going to you know, enjoy this day anytime in the near future. Today is the near future. I'm yeah. having a good time. Yeah. Between now and November 4th, 2014 is the near future. Yeah. This is nice. Yes. So yeah. uh, I, I love Chuck Grassley's threat. He's yeah, like, totally. all right, yeah. if, if we get into power, then not only will we do this for all, uh, executive branch nominees, but we'll also do it for Supreme Court justice, even though Democrats, out of the goodness of their heart, decided not to do that. So if I'm a Democrat, I'd be like, oh, thanks for the warning. So I guess we'll do it right now. Right okay. Now. Right. So from here on out, since the Republicans said they were going to do it on their watch, they set the rule. Okay, great. So you don't get the filibuster Supreme Court nominees either. Okay? You want to keep doing threats? No, no, no. Do one more threat. Tell me what else you're well, going to do. Yeah, yeah. McConnell said plus, legislation as well. Plus, there's a certain That's lack true. of moral clarity, shall we say, in their position. And the lack of moral clarity is this. They're saying this is unforgivable destruction of a majestic tradition, to use his words. All of a sudden, I love that. How many years have they controlled the time? All of a sudden, they get in power. It's unforgivable, it, it's dictatorial, destroying a majestic tradition, and we're going to do it twice as much when we... What? Yeah. <laughs> as a moral position, there's a lack of clarity there, don't you think? Yeah, and, and second of all, he's lying. It, it, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. No, not it was all. a clear misdirection that, that Republicans do all the time. They didn't say Iraq and 9-11 were connected, they just said it in the same sentence. He didn't say the filibuster was in the Constitution, but he mentioned the word Constitution as if we're taking the Democrats are taking it out of the Constitution, which is not the case. 
case. And remember when they originally made the deal not to go nuclear earlier, when the Democrats and, the, and Mitch McConnell got together, Mitch McConnell promised that they would only filibuster nominees going forward under extraordinary circumstances. That those were the words, extraordinary. Yeah. They then went on to filibuster every nominee. Okay, right. so I guess every Obama nominee was extraordinary, right? And so the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, three nominees. The Republicans say we had no objections to, the, to them specifically, but we filibuster everything. Lindsey Graham comes out and says, because of Benghazi, this or that, I didn't get to speak to somebody's barber in Benghazi. I want to speak to every living person in Benghazi. I'm going to block every appointment. So everything was extraordinary. So they violated their word. And my favorite fact is, of all the filibusters of nominees in United States history, half of them have happened under Obama because of the Republicans. It's astounding. You want to talk about extraordinary. That's extraordinary. And there are a lot of ways to play with those stats, but it doesn't matter. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows that that's the relevant stat, that more than half have happened under Obama. And if Democrats did that, if the situation were exact, were reversed precisely, we'd be five years into the Republicans yeah. having done away with the filibuster. Yeah. They already would have done it if Democrats blocked them like that. So it's a pointless threat that they're making because of course they'll do it and they should. And, 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 and if they were getting their nominees blocked like that, they ought to do it. You mean all of a sudden after five years the Democrats are doing this? Right. All, yeah, of all, sudden, sudden, right. all of a sudden. All of a sudden after only, that's right, after only five what, years. What I this. love is, as you say, you can talk about the stats in different ways, but they on Fox will not talk about any stats. They even lie about what the appointments are for. They say that he wants to stack the U.S. Court of Appeals in, in the <laughs> District of Columbia. No, the spots are vacant. Some have been vacant for years. And we're not just talking about that. We're talking about the, the FH, uh, FHFA. We're talking about Civil Rights Commission, uh, the SEC, the FCC, the FEC, the National uh, Science Foundation, the U.S. Geological Survey, Department of Homeland Security. All across the entire government, these people are being... Uh, filibustered for months, possibly even years sometimes. I, I gotta give you two more things about that. That's important. One, number one, at the Court of Appeals level, uh, only 23 nominees have ever been uh, filibustered in the history of the United States. 20 of them have been under Obama. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Right. Come on! So now, by the way, now ram these home. Yeah. And put right. good judges there. Now, yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah. by the yeah. way, now their use it. of terminology, when FDR tried to appoint whatever it was, 14 or 15 people to a nine-person Supreme Court, yeah. That's stacking. That, that's stacking, right. But when you fill a judge, a judicial vacancy, that's called appointing. Yeah. And you know what that they is? They don't understand the terminology. And RJ, that's in the Constitution. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's very specifically in the Constitution, right. Chuck. Right, and that, by the way, there was a second reason why they blocked everything Obama was doing, not just to be obstructionist to Obama and basically negate his term. You won the presidency, but we're going to negate it anyway. We're not going to let you do the appointments you would normally do, etc. But the second reason was that they don't want the SEC to function yeah, right. they, because they it's represent the, the guys who are doing the fraud on Wall Street they don't want regulators looking over the what, what's the last thing robbers want cops they don't like the right they don't like the regulators right exactly <laughs> yeah. so that's why they didn't fill any of those seats and by the way the most uh, you know affected thing was actually the Federal Election Commission the FEC and they don't want anybody looking into the shenanigans of yep. how they raise money in elections because they're gonna find out a treasure trove of crap there and that's why they didn't want those seats filled yep. and I'll say one more thing about this which is that I'm surprised honestly I thought in Obama's second term if you had asked me to guess how much more progressive Obama and the Democrats would be I would have guessed zero percent and I would have said the best we could hope for is the five percent that we got under the first term right five percent changes what Obama prom you know believes is real change but so far with this and with a couple of different actions and maybe Janet Yellen 
Yeah, yeah, 25%. I mean, we're not talking like, whoa, it's a sea change, 180, all of a sudden they're massively liberal. No, no, no. But, like, they've gotten 25% towards actual progressive and strong actions. Yeah. Not just, like, theoretical and symbolic, but they're actually doing something here. So I'm, I'm duly impressed. Congratulations. You are living in historic times. We are all living in historic times because this year, 2013, is the year when the United States Congress did less work than any other U.S. Congress in the history of U.S. Congresses, people. Oh, yeah. This Congress has passed less legislation and made less policy and less law than literally any other Congress in the history of our country back to the beginning. They are on track to set the record. And that's not even counting the fact that while they were doing no legislating at all, they also managed to shut down the federal government and almost default on the national debt all before Halloween. So, like, let's say you have a car that's up on blocks in the yard, right? It's up on blocks, it's not on wheels, it doesn't run. But then in addition to being up on blocks and not running, you also manage to push the car off the blocks and onto your foot. So in addition to not driving you anywhere, your car has also managed to break all your toes. That's what this Congress is. And in this metaphor, you pay your car $174,000 a year to sit there on blocks and occasionally break your feet. This Congress is amazing. And it has been amazing for a very long time. This year will set the record for Congress doing less than it has ever done before. But the record before this year will be last year, which is the first year that John Boehner took over as Speaker. This Congress is amazing. But small glimmer of hope today, a tiny blink and you might miss it sign of progress today. Actually, actually a couple signs of progress. First of all, the House of Representatives decided today to add a whole extra day of work to their calendar between now and the end of the year. See, they had planned to give themselves a total of 239 days off work this year, but now they're only going to give themselves 238 days off work. They have just decided that they are going to be in session next Monday, which means that next week your member of Congress is planning to work a full five-day week which they never do. And so we should probably all get the fainting couches ready. They might pass out. You know, though, progress is progress. Baby steps. So that, that was sign of progress number one. They're actually going to work next week. Sign of progress number two is that the House actually passed a thing today. The House actually passed something important and substantive that has a good chance of not dying on its way across the hall to the Senate. The House today voted to keep in place our country's long-standing ban on plastic guns that cannot be detected by metal detectors. Ronald Reagan signed the plastic gun ban in 1988. It was due to expire this week, but the House today voted to keep it in place, to extend it for another 10 years. Naturally, the House of Representatives decided to cast this vote in the least courageous way possible. They passed it by a voice vote, which means that nobody has to be on the record as voting for it or against it. But still, I'm not complaining. Baby steps. They did it. They passed what should be the easiest thing in the entire world to pass. But for this Congress, no one was quite sure if they could do it. 
And that's not all. Uh, the third glimmer of getting something done from the worst Congress ever today um, was a report from Politico.com. Politico reporting that Democratic Senator Patty Murray, who heads up budget issues for the Democrats, uh, Patty Murray and her Republican counterpart in the House, according to Politico, they are reportedly rather close to a deal, which might actually result in us having a budget as a country. That'd be neat. Um, and which would at least partially replace the self-inflicted, designed-to-be-stupid-and-painful cuts known as the sequester. According to Politico, a deal to finally kibosh the stupid sequester could finally be at hand. Maybe. There's a catch, though. It's Senator Patty Murray, right, in the Senate. She's a Democrat. Her Republican counterpart in the House, who she's working with on this, is Congressman Paul Ryan of Wisconsin. And that might be a problem, because you might remember Paul Ryan from the big deficit reduction commission in 2010. He was part of that, and then he killed it. You might also remember him from the grand bargain struck by President Obama and Speaker John Boehner in 2011, which was also killed by Paul Ryan. So, yes, Patty Murray and Paul Ryan are reportedly close to a deal, which would kill the sequester and get us a budget and all sorts of other reasonable things that everybody in Washington says they want. But... Paul Ryan's whole history of working on deals like this is that he likes to be seen to be working on them before he breaks free and calls them impure and then kills what he himself helped to negotiate. So we shall see on this. I am not exactly getting excited about this yet. Initial reports are positive. Long-term prospects are dim. But you know what? Even the babiest of baby steps are still steps. And in a year like this one, with a Congress like this one, even the most meager signs of forward progress must be nurtured. You can do it, you guys. You can do it. Surprise everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. So as I sometimes do, I'm going to respond to these voicemails as they come. So let's get started. Hi, my name is Tracy. I'm from Columbia, Missouri, and I'm just calling about the recent focus on trans issues that you had a podcast. I honestly didn't finish listening to it for a couple reasons. Just in terms of content to be fairly rudimentary in the commentary, and the word transsexual was used in more than one clip, I believe, and that's really fallen out of favor. It was just sort of like a lot of people who aren't really familiar with the issue offering qualified opinions on it and that's not really that interesting i think that i understand the the lack of available content maybe on this subject but um you know there's so many rich issues involved with the trans community i myself identify as genderqueer but like the trans community is you know in wars with um the cis members of the queer community there's the co-opting of the term radical feminism to mean trans-exclusionary feminists of queer and straight cis women. So there's a lot of interesting issues out there. You can see them play out on, like, auto-straddle and all over Twitter. Look it up. It's really cool. Thanks. So the caller makes two perfectly accurate points. Uh, you know, the first that her, her guess is absolutely correct that the available material on this subject is incredibly limited. So, you know, if I, if I find a clip that includes sort of, you know, discussion on trying to normalize the, the trans issue and trans people and sort of an interesting conversation about people's previous biases and how they've come around and how that seems like a good thing, you know, but then it also includes 
you know, jank on the Young Turks being sort of obnoxiously ignorant about uh, terms used in the discussion. Like, you know, you just end up having to take the good with the bad or, or you end up with essentially nothing left. Um, the second point, though, about that episode being rather rudimentary and, and not interesting to people who are sort of more at the equivalent of the advanced graduate level degrees. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the way it is. I mean, there are lots of really interesting, really in-depth advanced conversations going on, but that is not where the general public is, as, as you are about to hear in the next voicemails. Uh, this audience being sort of a, of a generally progressive-minded average group of people, uh, there are going to be a lot of people for whom those types of conversations would go completely over their head and would be just as uninteresting because you you just you can't talk about calculus if you haven't talked about arithmetic first. So that, that's sort of where we're at and why you know I think it's it's perfectly okay to do the those kind of uh, you know rudimentary level episodes first and then as the discussion broadly gets better and more advanced, you know, so will this show obviously. I just don't understand the transgender thing at all, really. Um, this doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, how somebody could want to be something that they don't have any way of really relating to whatsoever as far as actually... A friend of mine tried to explain to me by saying that, that they envision themselves as wanting to be in another body, which I can kind of relate to, but it just boggles the mind to me. That's, I just don't understand, like... How, how do people, you know, say that they feel like they should be a woman? I mean, how would you know what that would even feel like? I mean, what, what does that even mean, you know, to somebody who's only experienced being one gender? I don't understand. I just, I just, I just I'm perplexed by it. It just dumped down to me. So that's a perfectly good example of a very rudimentary question that still deserves to be answered, and I think I can do it in a way that will will really sort of resonate with people interested in politics, pay attention, uh, you know, to politics, but not necessarily gender issues. So, as with so many issues in politics, there is, is the trouble with confusing correlation with causation. You know, when two things happen. It's really easy to look at it and say, look, you know, this thing happened and then this other thing happened. That must be why, you know, thing A happened, then thing B. Therefore, it's because of thing A. But that's not true. That's correlation. It does not prove causation. And it's the source of a huge amount of confusion all the time. Now, when it comes to gender, a lot of people assume and it, and there, there is no reason why you would not assume this unless you are confronted with an alternative theory and evidence, which there is. <laughs> so everyone assumes, because it's the simplest, easiest thing, that there is a causal relationship between a person's biology and their gender identity. So their biology is, you know, what shape their body is actually in and their gender identity is all in your head. It's, you know, completely our sense of self is 100% in the brain. And so it's a fairly reasonable assumption that there is a causal relationship between the way your body looks and the way your brain perceives your gender identity. But that's not true. It's there is not a causal relationship. There is very, very often a correlation. By and large, the huge majority of people, there is a correlation between their gender identity and their biology. But it, it just so happens that they correlate. But that's not actually the cause. So this person asks, you know, how can you feel like you are something that you've never been? 
sort of assumes that in order to be a woman, you know, if you're born with male biology, in order to be a woman, you need to physically be a woman. But that's not true because that correlation is not causation. You can have the internal workings, the internal sense of self, the internal gender identity of a woman without having the standard female physical biology. So I think the first step to understanding this issue is to break that false link, that false impression that gender and biological sex is is linked in a causal way rather than just usually correlating. Hey Jay, this is Melissa from New York. Melissa Doom, actually, I was featured in your trans episode. Thank you for that. Uh, so you asked for comments with the trans issue, and I didn't have anything particular to add, but I wanted to talk about the way a lot of people talk about trans issues. I know that you gather clips, so it's not necessarily your fault for the way that people phrase things, and they're, you know, they aren't doing good, and they're covering it in the first place, and I don't want to um, come up with a static, but there's a couple things that people uh, discuss that I think that could be discussed better. Um, first, um, a lot of people were saying the um, born in the wrong, or trapped in the wrong body thing, yada, yada, yada. That's sort of um, an old myth. It's not really, or not, not quite myth, it's just not the best way to understand it because it automatically forces everything into a binary, forces into there are men, there are women, and everyone fits into one of them, and some people have a mismatch. Um, but it's not the case. Um, there's lots of other identities in between, and when you say, you know, this person's trapped in the wrong body, you um, erase those people, and it's just not the most correct way to talk about it. It also um, destroys the fact that there is, it belies the fact that there's a lot of a big spectrum between um, just being cis and being trans. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is a couple of the clips that you played talked about men who like trans women, and the way that the hosts were talking about it is a little weird, because they were talking, they, you know, were talking about the shame of it, and there was a lot of, oh, I wouldn't do this, but uh, the weird thing, is, the problem with it is that there's two problems. There's one, the fact that there's a stigma attached to it all. Men who are attached to trans women are cis, are straight. There's nothing gay about it. There's nothing queer about it. Trans women are women. The genitals that someone has does not really determine the gender that they are. And the other thing I had is it's kind of a little skeevy in my mind to talk about um, the men anyway. And it's supposed to be about trans issues. Um, I know that it was covered um, because... We, you know, it was just one other perspective, and it's good that this, this stuff came out in the first place. But it's a little, um, I, I would prefer that we would talk about actual trans people. Okay, thanks, Jay. Goodbye. I mentioned before about how a person's gender identity and really their general sense of self in its entirety it takes place entirely within the mind and really has nothing to do with the biology of the body. And Melissa, who we just heard from, actually wrote in in addition to calling in and drives that point home talking about biology. So uh, Melissa says, Biology is basically irrelevant to the discussion of trans identity. I'm not a woman who is biologically male. I'm a woman. How can we say that my body is male when its owner isn't? As I said in my letter to Radio Dispatch, gender isn't two distinct categories. Even in biology and even in genetics, there are tons of intersex conditions that are invisible and much more common than you'd think. Biology just isn't that relevant. So that's going to be it on, on voicemails and emails on the sub subject today. There is definitely more to come. And so I, you know, I just want to leave with, with that point that you know, if, if you are stuck on you know, feeling that gender is defined by biology, then that is going to be your stumbling block forever. And uh, you know, so it's, if, if you have thought that your entire life, 
it is going to be it's going to feel like an inconvenience to sort of unseat that way of thinking and exchange it for something new but the fact that you know it shouldn't be thought of as an inconvenience it should be thought of as as an opportunity to expand your understanding and refine your thinking to something that is more accurate because if you are stuck on that old theory then nothing about the world will make sense basically it's it's like having a hypothesis you test your hypothesis the evidence shows your hypothesis can't be true but then you stick with that hypothesis anyways and then try to make sense of the world given that you have a hypothesis and the evidence does not support it. it you know, the, the only way for the world to make sense is to throw out the hypothesis and go with something new, which is that gender and biology are, it turns out, unrelated. Please keep the thoughts and questions coming on this subject, especially if you know more than I do. We would love to hear from you and, and have those messages played on the show uh, or feel f free to email. Uh, but the number to, to dial is 202-999-3991 or you can email me at j at jay at bestofleft.com. Uh, before I go, I want to mention that the uh, the bonus content has, I, you know, it's just me talking, but it's it's been some good stuff recently. Um, the, the the most recent episode is me. Uh, I, I tell the story of how I had a a conversation about race and, and sort of race issues and dynamics with a 93 year old progressive minded person born and raised in the South. And boy, if you don't think that that sounds interesting, then I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, so to get access to those, sign up, become a member. All the details are at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Uh, during the shopping season, of course, you can, uh, you know, if you have to shop and buy gifts and you're going to do it on Amazon anyways, then please do that through the banner at bestoftheleft.com. Siphon off some of that, uh, you know, Christmas money and give it to progressive politics instead. But that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. That's an incredibly powerful way to help the show, so check that out. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, episode. All that information can be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories and Past our own sad stories and one.